going to be in Nehemiah for the next two or three months probably. About a dozen sermons, give or take. Nehemiah, that's in the Old Testament. If you can find Samuel King's Chronicles, just a little bit past that, you'll find Esther and I mean, excuse me, Ezra and Nehemiah, and and both of these books kind of kind of cover the same time period, and and really they they are kind of in the same time period of Esther. They're all kind of about the same era. Nehemiah chapter 1, we're going to try to get through the whole chapter. We started Esther this past Sunday. And at this point in time, uh, God's people have been, have been dispersed. They've been driven out of Jerusalem, at least most of them. There were still a few people around Jerusalem. But for the most part, when the Babylonians came in, God's people, the, the, the southern tribe of Judah, uh, was taken into exile, and for 70 years, God's people uh, were in exile, but, but eventually the reign of the Babylonians was coming to an end, and the reigns, reign of the Persians was, was starting up. And when the reign of the Persians began, we see uh, that God's people have an opportunity to go back and to begin to rebuild Jerusalem, to go back and to be able to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the walls. And what we see in the book of Ezra is God's people going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And then shortly after that, what we see in Nehemiah is he gets word about the condition of the city. And so in Nehemiah, he is focused on rebuilding the walls of the city so that God's people can go back in and uh, and, and kind of get back to a sense of normalcy. And so that gives you a little bit of background for what we're talking about tonight. So let's pray, and then we will jump in. Father God, we come to you, and we thank you for your good words. And I pray, God, that you just would help me to do a good job to preach and teach. And as we look at Nehemiah and the events that surrounded all that went on in those times, God, help us to see some application in our life as well. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would free us of any distractions and any worries and things of the world, and that tonight we give you our attention. I pray that you'd be glorified, dear Lord, that you hide me behind the cross, and I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the decree I mentioned earlier, and you can turn here if you want to, or you can listen, is, is found at the beginning of the book of Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah. And in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we see this uh, speaking of Cyrus, the king of Persia. It says in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put, put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Whoever is among his people, may his God be with him. And may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he lives, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. And so we see 
this allowance by this time uh, by, by these kings of Persia who allow uh, God's people to go back to their land. And the Persians were pretty, were pretty open in that sense about kind of letting people go about their own way and kind of do their own thing. And, and what's really interesting about the fact that Cyrus gave this decree was that this was prophesied very specifically in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, it says, The Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him, to disarm kings, to open the doors before him, and the gates will not be shut. And what's interesting about this prophecy of Isaiah is that it was at least 150 years, between 150 to 200 years before these events took place. And what's more interesting is that it specifically names Cyrus, who was not even born at this point in time. So this 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 idea that God was going to restore his people had been given by the prophets. And, and Cyrus mentioned by name in the book of Isaiah. And so that's why the people were allowed to go back and begin to build the temple in Ezra. And that's why now, when we get to Nehemiah some years later, uh, we still see this that God is looking out for them, and, and they're pretty much under the control of these kings who, who really are lenient and give them freedom and say, hey, you want to go back to your land, I encourage you to go back to your land. And not only that, but, but these kings are supportive and making sure that they have, have what they need to be able to begin to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, it reads, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Shislev in the 20th year. Now, before we read any further, Shislev would be uh, around November or December, if we want to get a time frame of when these events took place. And it says in the, in the uh, uh, 20th year. Now, this is most likely speaking of the 20th year of the king of that day. And the king of that day, which we will see when we get into Nehemiah 2, was King Artaxerxes. Now, you may remember from Sunday, we talked about King Ahasuerus. And King Ahasuerus also was King Xerxes. He went by both names, which is not terribly uncommon. Artaxerxes, the king that's reigning when uh, Nehemiah is t taking place, is the son of Xerxes. And so we can see just from, from that, that clue right there that these events are very close together from what we are studying in Esther on Sunday morning. And so we have kind of a time frame of the year. Uh, we know who the king is, not here, but as we read on. But during the months of November, December, in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, when I was in the fortress of Susa. Now you may remember from Sunday, where did the events of, of Esther take place? In the fortress of Susa. So we're in the same same geographic area. So, so a, a lot of these things are, are very similar in time frame and people involved and in the area in which they're taking place. Verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down, and its gates have been burned down. Now, the way that that may be worded in some of your translations may sound like that this is a recent event, but I don't think it is. I think it's probably just referencing the fact that the walls and the gates had been torn down and burned down 
when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. So the walls were still in shambles all of these years later after the Babylonians had destroyed them. I don't think that this is some recent event that has redestroyed the walls. I don't think that they had been built back. And so when his when his, his brother comes to him and says, Hey, things things in Jerusalem are not good. There's a few a few people of Judah who are back there but it's things are in really bad shape. Things are in shambles. There's no walls. And without walls, there's no protection. And so that's, that's a, a key thing in, in, in those days. And I guess we could say a key thing in our days. There's still talk of building walls or maybe in the past talk of tearing walls down. Uh, walls can either be put up to keep people out or to keep people in. Uh, and in many cases, when we see in Scripture here, where walls are a protection. To keep uh, to keep enemies out to to protect to protect what's there and now that the temple has been rebuilt and now that some of God's people are are moving back into Jerusalem there needs to be protection and there is none that's what uh, Nehemiah gets in this report and so in verse four he says when I heard these words I sat down and wept I mourned for a number of days fasting and praying before the God of heaven now. We see fasting mentioned a lot uh, in the Old Testament, and we see it mentioned in the New Testament as well. And this may be something that perhaps we need to be prayerful about, because maybe we don't we don't practice fasting in our life, but we should practice fasting in our life. It it is a good thing in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. The idea of fasting is a is a good thing, and that that means to uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, saying I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink for a set period of time. Now, this is not just for dietary reasons. Really, the idea being that 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 fasting is is usually something that occurs uh, in repentance. If if we are repenting for our sin, it's it's an outward showing of, of kind of that we're mourning over our sin, that we are repentant of our sin, that, that we just don't feel good. And so we we don't want to seek that sin. We don't want to live in that sin, but we want to seek the Lord. And that's that's what we see in the Old Testament. The story of uh, uh, Jonah being a good example of that. When Jonah went and he preached to Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrians, who were very cruel and evil people, but Jonah went and he preached to them, and he said, "Hey, God's going to bring destruction." And it says the king began to fast, and he began to he changed his clothes. He he, he set an a wore sackcloth, and he set in ashes. And these were all signs of, of repentance and mourning over sin. And the king commanded all the people. He said, hey, y'all do the same thing. Y'all fast. And so this was a visible symbol that they really were repentant of their sins. They really did have a change of heart. Now, we can also fast and not have a change of heart. And uh, uh, Jesus calls out people for that in the New Testament. You fast twice a week, but it really don't didn't do them any good because they weren't doing it with the right heart. A, a, a great story in the New Testament in Luke chapter 18 when, when two people are praying and one of them is really religious and one of the things he says is, is I fast often, you know? And the other guy, he was a sinner, he wouldn't even raise his, his head up to, to the Lord to pray. But which one had the right heart? The one who was religious and fasting often and going through the motions? Not at all. The one who was humble, the one who was contrite. And uh, so, so simply saying, I'm not going to eat for a day or two or drink for a day or two is not enough. It, when we fast, it needs to come from a heart of repentance or a heart of mourning or a heart of weeping. That's what we see when Saul and Jonathan pass away uh, in the Old Testament, uh, that David and the people, they fast and they mourn. They mourn to death. 
of Saul and of Jonathan. And so sometimes when we are mourning or sometimes when we are in a state of repentance, uh, we may should fast and we need to be prayerful about that. And when we fast, it's not just I'm not going to eat today, but it's I'm not going to eat today, but instead I'm going to focus on the Lord today. Uh, perhaps when it's time for a meal or perhaps when you get hungry and want a snack, it gives you opportunities to think about the Lord. And those opportunities will come quick. You might can make it to 9, 10, 11 o'clock, but you make it through lunch and you used to eating breakfast every day and lunch every day. Well, by lunch, you're starting to get hungry. And so every time those hunger pains hit, that may be a good opportunity for you to say, okay, let me focus on the Lord and say, God, all right, I can't live on bread alone, but only on your word. And think about God's word and focus on God's word and repent. It's a, it's a good way, physically speaking, to kind of cleanse your body, uh, but, but it's also a good way to cleanse your soul that you can look at your life and you can repent. And so fasting is a good thing, and that's what we see Nehemiah doing here when he hears this, this news. He begins to fast and pray before God. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenants with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants. The Israelites, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the command, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Now, Nehemiah is, is sad because of what he hears going on in Jerusalem, but he knows the cause of it. He knows that the people of Israel, the people of God are in this condition because they have sinned. And so he begins to pray over their sin, and he doesn't just say, God, I pray for all these wicked sinners in Israel. He says, I pray that you would, you would forgive us our sins. I confess the sins that we have committed. He includes himself in that, and that's, that's an important detail because maybe we find ourselves praying for our land sometimes. Now, I want to make sure that that we don't ever make a confusion. These promises that God made to Israel are not promises that necessarily are, are applicable to the United States, uh, at, at least in the sense that we say, oh, these passages are speaking about us. No, these are not promises to the United States. They're promises to Israel, many of these things that we see. But in the promises that God makes to Israel and in the things that God says to them and in the things that God does for them, they show us God's character and God's desire. And those things are applicable to all people who seek the Lord, to anyone who is God's people. We see God's desire, that he wants us to live in obedience. And when we do, he blesses us. And when we don't live in obedience, well, we, we suffer the consequences. Now, I believe that's certainly true on an individual level, but it's also true in a, in a, in a nation level. Any nation in this world that would begin to seek God, the people of that nation, God would bless that nation. I don't doubt that for a second. When people seek God and people listen to God and people are obedient to God, he will bless them. It doesn't matter what nation it is. It could be the worst nation in this world, which may very well be these United States right now, if we're honest. Whatever nation, whatever people seek God, he will bless them. And so maybe we find ourselves praying for our nation or other nations. But maybe also we find ourselves praying for all those evil people, those sinners. But maybe we need to be aware that perhaps we are part of the problem too, that we are sinners. And maybe we are not living for God the way that we should. And we need to pray in the way that Nehemiah did. Dear Lord, we are in trouble. 
Dear Lord, we are experiencing hard times in our lives, in our churches, in our nation, in our world. And God, it's because we have sinned. Not because all of those other people in this political party or that political party are doing evil. But God, because we have sinned. As your people, we have sinned. And maybe there are things in our life that we need to recognize. And that's, that's what Nehemiah's prayer was. And he says, look, both I and my father's house have sinned. We have not listened to those commands that you gave us through Moses. And so he's heartbroken because of what's going on. He knows why it's going on, but he also knows that he is a sinner as well as the rest of the people. But he's calling out to God because he knows that God is good. Now, in verse 8, he says this. He recalls some words of the past that God had gave to his people. In verse 8, he says, Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. Now, he's kind of summarizing, I believe, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we will look at that. But, but he acknowledges that there's a problem. We have sinned. And God, you even told us that you're going to make promises to us, that you did make promises to us. And if we are obedient, God, you will bless us. But if we sin, God, you told us we would be scattered. And Nehemiah knows that they are scattered, that they are not doing good. But he says, but also, God, I remember that you said that if we would seek you, that you would, you would restore us. Now, the passage that I think he may be speaking about here is found in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 28. We see this, 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 uh, this curse that's going to come on the people if they are disobedient. If they're disobedient, if they're not listening to the Lord, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, it says, Then, that is, if you're disobedient, then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will worship other gods of wood and stone, which, which neither you nor your fathers have known. You will find no peace among those nations. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a despondent spirit. Your life will hang in doubt before you. You will be in dread day and night, never certain of survival. Now this is what God told them way back in Moses. Hey, God said, I want to bless you. I want to be with you. I want to take care of you. But if you don't listen to me, if you're disobedient to me, you're going to get scattered. You're not going to have any peace. You're not going to be, you're not going to get any rest. You're going to be in a foreign land. You're going to worship foreign gods. It's going to be, every day will be a day of dread for you. And so the people very well knew the conditions of the, of the promises that God was making to them. But then if we flip a couple of chapters further in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we see this promise of restoration. In Deuteronomy 30 verse 1, it says, When all these things happen to you, the blessings and curses I have set before you, and you come to your senses while you are in all the nations where the Lord God has driven you, and you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul by doing everything I am giving you today, then he will restore your fortunes, have compassion on you, and gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Even if your exiles are at the ends of the earth, 
He will gather you and bring you back from there. The Lord your God will bring you into the land your fathers possessed, and you will take possession of it. He will cause you to prosper and multiply you more than he did your fathers. So what does God say? He says, look, if you're disobedient, I'm going to punish you. But he says, when you come to your senses, when you realize that, you, that you're living in sin, when you realize that you've stepped away from me, when you realize that you're not following me, but you're going your own way and you follow, follow another God, when you realize that, come to your senses and repent, he says, I will bless you. He says, when you are scattered far and wide, he said, I'll bring you back to the land that I promised to give you. I will bless you more than those who came before you. And that's what Nehemiah says. He says, look, God, I know your word. I know you said if we're disobedient, we'll be scattered. But he said, I also know you said, God, that if we seek you, if we come to you, you'll restore us. And that's what Nehemiah is praying. He is heartbroken over the condition of his people. He's heartbroken over the condition of his land. And he says, God, I call out to you. I mourn, I weep, I fast because, God, I know that I have sinned that we have sinned, and God, we need you. And so he's really earnestly calling out before the Lord. And then in verse 10, he says, They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. So he's, he's, he's remembering how good God is. He's reminding God in a sense that these are God's people. He's reminding God or perhaps praising God for the fact that God has delivered his people in the past. And knowing God's strength and power, he's calling on that strength and power to deliver them here in the present. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. Now, I think the presence of this man, I think the man he's talking about is the king, that, that, that God would be with him and God would grant him favor in the eyes of the king, Artaxerxes, which we will see when we get to chapter 2 next week. Because he says, look, I'm the cupbearer of the king. And so this is a, this is a good little detail for us. The cupbearer is right there with the king. He's the one that, that provides the, the drink to the king. And so... This is a little clue of how God works. Sometimes they say, man, isn't that a coincidence? Of all the places Nehemiah could be, and he's right there with the king. Well, it's not a coincidence. It's God intervening and working through Nehemiah, ultimately for the good of his people. But he says here uh, in verse 11, he says that your servants who delight in your name, listen to the prayer and be attentive to the prayer of the servants who revere your name. And that's a good thing for us to consider. Do we revere the name of God? That is, do we respect God? Do we honor God? Well, maybe we do or maybe we don't. I mean, we come to church, praise the Lord, that's good. But, but you can come to church and not respect God or honor God, not revere God. And so we need to respect God and honor God in our actions and the way we live and the things we do. And perhaps we need to be a little bit like Nehemiah. Perhaps our heart needs to be a little bit more like Nehemiah's because look I can promise you this, this, this promises that God made to Israel were to Israel but it shows us the character of God and those promises at least in some sense if not specifically uh, they don't necessarily apply to any specific nation today but they apply to anybody who will seek God 
And anybody who seeks God with a heart like Nehemiah, they will find God. And any people and any nation that seek God with a heart like Nehemiah's, they will find God. And so perhaps we need to examine our life and our heart and say, okay, God, am I where I need to be? Maybe we haven't been uh, uh, stretched across foreign lands, but perhaps we're not walking close to the Lord. Perhaps we're in disobedience. Perhaps we're not seeking the Lord. Perhaps we're seeking other things and trusting other things. And perhaps every day is a day of dread for us. Perhaps every day is a day that we are not experiencing the peace of God. Well, if that's the case, it may be that we're no better than the Israelites, and we certainly aren't. It may be that we're guilty of what they are, that we're living in sin, and that we've got ourselves in a mess because when we leave God, there is no joy and peace. And so what do we do? We acknowledge that. When we see the condition of things around us, as Nehemiah did, and we see things aren't good in my life, things aren't good in my community, things aren't good in my church, things aren't good in my nation, when we see that things around us are falling apart, what is our response? Do we take part of the blame and say, God, I am part of the problem, I am a sinner? Do we shovel the blame on somebody else or do we humble ourselves like Nehemiah? Are we heartbroken over our sin, over the sin of our, our world? And do we say, God, I come before you. I mourn, I weep, I fast. God, I seek you. God, I need you. Because of my sin, I'm in a mess. But God, you are good. And God, you have restored your people in the past. And God, you will restore your people now. And maybe some of us are in need of restoration. And my favorite, my favorite line from Psalm 23 is, David says, he restores my soul. He restores my soul. David knew that truth, and I hope we know it today. Nehemiah knew that truth, and I hope we know it today. And if we don't have joy in our soul, then let us repent and seek God in the same way Nehemiah did. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you. We thank you for these good words. It's a lot of good stuff for us to consider, and I pray that you would help us to do it. I pray that you would help us to hear your word and listen to your word. And God, I pray that... We'd seek you. Dear Lord, when it comes to prayer and fasting and mourning and weeping, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit guide and direct us on when we need to do it. And if we do, dear Lord, your word tells us to keep quiet, don't make a big deal, don't even let anybody know we're doing it. Just try to live life and, and seek you during those times. So God, if you put it on our heart to fast and seek you, I pray that we'd be obedient to do it. But not just do it to do it, dear Lord, but that we do it because our heart's in the right place. And so... God, maybe that's what some of us need. Maybe we need to do it more regular than we do. But let your Holy Spirit be the guide on that and let us do it with the right heart when we do. God, I pray that we'd seek you in the same way that Nehemiah did, that we would know the truth of your word. And those truths are still applicable to us too. God, when we turn from you and don't seek you and live in disobedience, well, more times than not, God, it's not going to be good times. So God, if we're if we're living in those bad times right now, I pray that we'd repent, that we'd seek you, and know that you are good. And God, I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.